0: Well, if you would turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. By way of reminder, we find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to look at the last kind of paragraph there, verses 13 through 18. And if you haven't been with us, the Thessalonian church is this young church that Paul had planted and had had to leave before he'd finished kind of teaching them everything that they needed to know. He'd had to leave because of persecution. And we, and we saw a couple of weeks ago that Paul had sent Timothy because he was worried about how they were doing. And Timothy had brought back an encouraging report that they were still walking in the faith and still being faithful. But Timothy also brought back a report of areas where the Thessalonians were kind of confused or had questions, which makes sense, right? Because Paul hadn't finished telling them everything that he'd wanted to tell them. And so Paul sat down and wrote this letter in part to answer those very questions that they had and to provide some guidance and instruction in his absence until he would eventually be able to return to them, which is what he wants to do. So our passage this morning is Paul's response to one specific issue that the Thessalonians were confused on and that was actually causing great distress in the church. The Thessalonians we're confused on the question of what is the spiritual state of Christians who die prior to the return of Christ? So let's begin by reading the passage together. uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Look at this with me. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. I want us to first look at at verses 13 through 14, where we see this assurance of hope. Paul is assuring the Thessalonians that even death, even death, cannot shake the Christian's hope. Now, what exactly is the question that is troubling this young church? It seems that the Thessalonians knew that they were supposed to be looking forward to the return of Christ as the source of their hope. It seems like they had that down. But as time has passed in Paul's absence, some of the church members there had passed away. And just like today, when we go to funerals, it's so often an event that kind of forces us to consider the reality of our own mortality, isn't it? The passing of a loved one can be an opportunity for us to sort of take stock of our lives, right? And and maybe to even confront uncomfortable questions that we usually perhaps would rather not think about. Death has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Well, the Thessalonians started having funerals for church members. And just like it can for us, it brought to the surface certain questions and fears that they had. And they weren't equipped in their theology to be able to resolve all of those problems. Remember, Paul hadn't finished teaching them everything that they needed to know. So they knew how to think about death according to their old way of living before they became Christians, but they didn't have a well-formulated understanding of how Christians ought to think about death. And... And it seems that the particular concern that they had was whether or not Christians who die would miss out on the return of Christ in some sense. There's something that they, that they wouldn't get to be a part of. So they, they, they knew that the return of Christ was the object of their hope when Jesus would return to save his people and make all things right. But what about the Christians who didn't make it to the end? Who pass away before Jesus returns? Paul says he's concerned about that question because of how the Thessalonians respond to death. The way the Thessalonians respond to death is another area where they are to be sanctified, where they're to be different than everyone else around them. They're not to respond to death or view death the way that those around them do view death. Paul doesn't want them to grieve over the death of Christians who have passed away in the same way that maybe they used to would have grieved over the death of a loved one. And that is that Paul does not want them to grieve without hope. Now notice, this is important. Paul does not say he wants them to not grieve at all. Grief is entirely appropriate for Christians. In fact, I would say grief is required for Christians. Christians must grieve. And we grieve because the world is broken. And we grieve because we see within ourselves the brokenness that sin has resulted in, in our own lives. We grieve as we endure ourselves, but then also watch one another, enduring pain and suffering. And it's pain and suffering that's common. It's common in the world because the world is full of sin and sorrow, isn't it? So if you're a Christian and grief is not a regular part of your experience of life in this world, something may be off a little bit. I think you should think of that like a a spiritual check engine light just flipping on. Because grief is normal for Christians in a fallen world. But not all grief is the same there are different kinds of grief. And Paul has heard that the Thessalonians are grieving like pagans, like those who do not know Christ. So Christians ought to grieve, but Christians ought never to grieve as those who have no hope. And so Paul's purpose in writing is to give them hope, not so that they, they will no longer grieve, but so that they will be able to grieve like Christians. And and in this particular instance, the way that Paul is going to help them, the way that Paul is going to give them this hope is by informing them. He's going to teach them. Because the source of their troubles is stemming from a lack of their understanding. They don't understand. And I want us to notice the connection right there between theology, our understanding of the Christian faith, and the rest of life. Everyone in this room is a theologian. It doesn't really matter if you've ever read a single book on the subject or not. Everyone here has certain beliefs about God and man and salvation that help you kind of explain and live in your life what we learn from this passage is that what you believe will impact, either positively or negatively, the way you live your life in this world. So the Thessalonians have incorrect or incomplete theology on this point. And it's affecting their lives. Their misunderstanding was causing them to live out one aspect of their Christian life in a way that's actually inconsistent with the real hope that they ought to have had. And here's the wrinkle when it comes to bad theology. No one has bad theology and knows it, do they? Now, probably no one has perfect theology. Probably all of us are wrong about something. But if you realized something that you'd been believing was wrong, you'd probably just stop believing it, right? That's the easy part. The hard part is figuring out where your blind spots are. So the Thessalonians have a blind spot in their theology and it's affecting their lives in serious ways. And and I want us to, just for a moment, to entertain the possibility that we may have theological blind spots that may be affecting the way we live life in this world, maybe even in big ways. If that were the case, how would we ever go about figuring that out? how would you figure out? The Thessalonians have it kind of easy. They got a letter from an apostle, right, who told them what their blind spot was and informed them of what they ought to believe in order to transform how they lived. They got off kind of easy. What about us? Well, it's really the same answer, just a little bit different. So, The scriptures were not written to us. There's no letter that says, Dear GBC, right? They were not written to us, but they were written for us. They were written for you. And so the task that's left to us is to submit our theology, our beliefs, our viewpoints, our biases, our opinions, all of it. Submit them to the Scriptures as the infallible rule by which we are to measure and evaluate what we believe. And, and this happens. When, when we as Christians come to realize something that we believe that's actually not in line with Scripture, what happens to us is the same thing that happened to the Thessalonians when they opened this letter and read it. Right? We become now informed. And to that extent, we are then conformed more and more into the image of Christ. That's a big part of Christian growth. It's a big part of Christian growth. And it's a part of Christian growth that never stops. We ought never to stop going to the scripture in an attitude of submission, looking to be taught and corrected. So, what is the information... Paul wants to give the Thessalonians. We know that the reason he wants to inform them is so that they will have hope, right? But what is the information they need in order to have hope? And there's really two parts of what Paul wants to inform them about. So in verse 14, Paul gives sort of the bedrock foundation of, what Christ, of, of, of why Christians ought to have hope and even in the face of death. This is sort of the the underlying principle that holds up everything else that Paul is going to say. And then in verses 15 through 17, Paul gives a more detailed answer to the Thessalonians' specific question about what's going to happen to those who've already died when Christ returns. But before he gets into those specifics, Paul wants to give them the broader context. The first thing that Paul wants to inform them of is the resurrection of Jesus as the basis of our Christian hope. So the reason why we can have confidence and hope in the face of death now, and the reason we can look forward to the future return of Christ as the day of salvation and not as a day of judgment, is because of something that has already happened in the past. That's what Paul says. So something has happened in the past that has radically changed what's going to happen in the future. And in light of that new future, what happens now in the present must also change. So what is the past event that Paul says has now changed absolutely everything else? He says it's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's read verse 14 again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul's doing theology right here for the Thessalonians. He begins with almost this creedal statement of this foundational Christian belief. The death and resurrection of Jesus. That's foundational. And then Paul draws an implication. Another belief that is derived from that fundamental truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul says there's an implication here for believers, and specifically believers who have died. Paul's making a comparison. Jesus died, so also Christians have died. And Paul is relating those two deaths to each other. So in in the ESV, the translation that I'm reading... There's this prepositional phrase, through Jesus. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Your translation may have a different prepositional phrase at the end. So it may say something like, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Those who have died in Jesus. I think that brings out Paul's point a little bit better. He's he's connecting the death of Christians to the death of Jesus. Those who die in Christ. That is, who die trusting in Christ. Those who die in Christ. Paul is saying in some sense they participate in or share in Jesus' death. And Paul says that sharing in Christ's death means that you will also share in Christ's resurrection. So Paul is saying... Just as Christ died and has already risen, so also those who die now in Christ will just as surely also be raised just as Christ was. Now what justifies Paul saying that? What is the logic that Paul is appealing to that dying in Christ guarantees Guarantees resurrection. Why is being connected to Christ's death guarantee future resurrection? It's because of what Christ's death accomplished, and therefore what Christ's death requires. What Christ, what his death accomplished, and therefore what his death requires. When Christ, the God-Man, died on, on the cross, he died as a perfect substitute for sinners. So Paul says in another book that the wages of sin, if you sin, what you get is death. That's the proper, appropriate penalty for sin. That means that sinners, like you and I, deserve to die. That is the wage that we have earned. We deserve hell. Jesus was sinless and thus did not deserve death and did not deserve the wrath of God, and yet he died. And when he died, he not only was enduring the physical pain and shame of the cross, that was not the worst thing about the death of Christ, was it? On the cross, Jesus underwent the wrath of God that was rightly deserved by sinners. Jesus satisfied God's righteous requirement to punish sinners. And he satisfied it by actually taking the punishment on himself in their place. Now remember, what are the the wages of sin? It's death. Jesus paid the penalty for sin by dying in the place of sinners who deserve death. And then he was raised from the dead this is so important. He was raised from the dead as the one who has conquered sin and death. And he's conquered sin and death on behalf of sinners. So this is Paul's logic. If you have died with Christ, and that, and that, means, that means that his death has paid the penalty that your sin deserves, right? Right? He has died in your place. If we have died with Christ, when a Christian who is a forgiven sinner dies, what must happen? Must they die so that they can pay for their own sin? Must they bear the consequences that their sin placed upon them? No, in fact, they must not pay for their own sin. Because their sin has already been paid for. They must not pay the penalty for their own sin. And therefore, just as Jesus, who was innocent and righteous, and therefore did not deserve to die, was raised from the dead, so also every forgiven sinner must be raised... Not because of their own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ and His perfect payment for all of their unrighteousness. So if you're in Christ, then your sins have already been paid for by Jesus' death. And that means the wages of sin, death, can never be exacted from you. And therefore, when Christians die physically, it's like when Jesus died physically. It is only for a time. It is only for a time. And his resurrection is the guarantee that our deaths, like his, will not end in the grave. They will end in resurrection and eternal life. Now, if that kind of death-conquering hope is something that you do not feel, do not have, there is something that you can do about it. The message of the gospel, the message of what Jesus has done for the sake of sinners, is not just a piece of information that we learn. It's actually, it actually demands a response from us. The gospel calls us to trust in Christ, to turn from our sin and self-righteousness, and to depend only on Christ's righteousness, and to depend only on His payment to cover our sins. Now, if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk with you more after the service about the connection between faith in Christ and and death-defeating hope. They're connected. Now, I think it's interesting here that that Paul, because he's speaking about the resurrection hope of believers, whose whose penalty of death has been taken away from them, he even speaks about physical death by using the metaphor of sleep. He says, those who have fallen asleep. Now, sleep was actually a really common metaphor for death that was used across many different cultures. But in addition to just kind of be a a common way in the day that was used to talk about death, it also is theologically useful to make a distinctly Christian point that death for a Christian is only temporary. Like a Sunday afternoon nap, It will come to an end. Now, I think it's also important that we not press a metaphor further than it's intended to go. So some would point to this kind of language as evidence that after death, during the intermediate state, the time between death and and the last day, that the soul of an individual, that the soul of an individual is in an unconscious sleep type state. It's referred to as soul sleep. Now, we aren 't given a whole lot of information about the intermediate period, but we are given some and, and I think the idea uh, and, and I think the, the idea of soul sleep from this passage I think presses that metaphor further than it's intended to go. So the death as sleep metaphor is used to describe the state of the body, right? which resembles someone sleeping that 's where the metaphor probably originally came for it's not used to describe the state of consciousness of the departed soul. And I think that's a consistent use, not just by Christians, but but even in pagan cultures who who utilized the metaphor, but who also believed in some kind of self-conscious afterlife, right? They go off and live with the gods or the forms or something like that. They didn't believe in a physical resurrection like Christians, but they still utilized the sleep metaphor because they were using it to refer to the state of the body, not the soul. So, I don't think we want to press the metaphor of sleep further than it's intended. And we need to keep in mind what else the scripture does say about the intermediate state. So, for instance, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, both who die. Lazarus, who's comforted in death, and the rich man who experiences conscious torment. And in his torment, even has a conversation with Abraham, who's also present and, and conscious with Lazarus. On the cross, there's another little hint, right? The thief asks Jesus to remember him when Jesus comes into his kingdom, and then Jesus tells him when that will be. Not only will the thief be remembered, but that very day he would be present with Jesus in paradise. Paul's own conception of what will happen at his own death in Philippians is that he will depart and will be with Christ, and that it will be far better than his current state on earth. In 2 Corinthians, he says that he'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But whether he's at home or away, whether he is on earth or whether he is in heaven, he says his aim will be to please Christ. He'll be pleasing Christ in heaven or he'll be pleasing Christ on earth. Now, what should we conclude? What should we conclude from the information that the New Testament does give us? I we know that the intermediate state is not the Christian's final hope. That's the big point. The Christian hope is found in the resurrection of the body when we will be raised just as Christ was raised. But the scriptures do seem clear and consistent that between death and the last days, believers are consciously present with the Lord even as they are still awaiting the resurrection of the body. So Paul, Paul does not want the Thessalonians to grieve over death as if there is no hope. There is death-defeating hope for Christians because Jesus died and rose again. That's his big explanation as for why. And his death and resurrection guarantees that the believer's physical death must only be temporary and will come to an end on the last day when Christ's victory will be so complete that all of those who are in Christ who shared in his death will be raised with him. So having given that sort of primary overarching reason for Christian hope, Paul then turns to answer their specific question about what's going to happen to those who died on the last day. Look with me at verses 15 through 18. Encourage one another with these words. Now what is Paul's first point in verse 15? This word that he's received from the Lord. He says, We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the Thessalonians were afraid that those who had already died would in some way miss out on the blessings of Christ's return. And whatever their misconception was, it must have been pretty severe because Paul describes them as grieving without hope. That leads me to think they were believing that Christians who die would, would miss out entirely on the blessing of Christ's return. And so Paul's overarching concern in these verses is to establish really complete equality in the experience of Christians, living or dead, At the return of Christ. And so he says, those who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They will not have even the slightest advantage when it comes to experiencing and receiving the goodness of God's salvation on that day. I think that's Paul's really main point in his answer to their question. Then, in verse 16, Paul describes what will happen on that day. When the Lord returns... And how does Paul describe the descent of the Lord Jesus to earth? With a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Why would Paul tell us that? Well, this this is symbolic language that's used all throughout the Bible, that Jesus himself used to describe the day of the Lord the day when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And I want us to look at a few passages that are influencing Paul's own thought and that will fill out our understanding of what Paul is saying. First, notice that Christ descends and is speaking. The word of the Lord is powerful, creative, and life-giving. So just as the heavens and the earth were created by God in the beginning by God speaking... Right. So here, the Son descends speaking a word of command. And at His word, the new creation is being spoken into existence. The dead are raised. The old created order is entirely made new. The Son is coming, and He is bringing His kingdom in its form. Fullness And the bodies of those who are in Christ are now raised in their new creation, resurrection bodies. So Jesus speaks about the new creation, life-giving word in John 5. Look at this with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself... So He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Notice verse 25 is speaking about a present reality. It is an hour who's, that is coming, and is, it's now here. When those who are spiritually dead hear the voice of the Son of God and are made alive. This is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus that is going out throughout the entire world. And as people are hearing the gospel, trusting in Christ, and being made alive in Him, But Jesus doesn't just speak of the preaching of the gospel as the only word that gives life. He says an hour is coming, but he doesn't say it's here yet. It is still future. When those who are in the tombs, those who have died, will hear the voice of the Son and they will be physically resurrected. So the preaching of the gospel today, we could say, is making people new on the inside. But on the last day, the Lord Jesus will speak and the Lord's people will be utterly and entirely made new. So in our passage, Jesus descends with a cry of command, kind of like when he commanded Lazarus to come out of the tomb and the dead in Christ are raised. Let's look at a passage from the Old Testament. Here's a description of the day of the Lord from Zephaniah. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, and against the lofty battlements. This passage has its focus on the return of the Lord Jesus as the judge of the world. The trumpets that we hear, the trumpets of battle, as the kingdom of heaven executes its final and complete invasion of the kingdom of man. We also read about the trumpet blast, that last trumpet blast in First Corinthians 15. Mickey read it for us earlier. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So the trumpet blast signals throughout Scripture... The return of Christ. And the complete biblical picture shows the day of the Lord as being both a day of ruin and destruction, like in Zephaniah. And Also a day of salvation, like in 1 Corinthians 15. He will judge his enemies, and he will save his people. Now in our passage in, in Thessalonians, Paul is addressing Christians, and he's, he's meaning to encourage them to have hope, and therefore he's really focused only on this last day as a day of salvation, he doesn't mention the resurrection of the wicked or the judgment. He's focused specifically on what will happen to believers, those who have died and those who are still alive on that day. And in fact, if, if anyone has an advantage on that day, it's actually those who have fallen asleep. Paul says that they will rise first, then, after... The dead are raised. Verse 17. Then those who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, this verse has some weird language. So the idea of meeting the Lord in the air is utilizing the same language that was used when a king or a dignitary was approaching a city. And the city sends out a delegation to meet the one approaching, to welcome them, and then to escort them back into the city. So the image presented in the text is that the king is coming. The king is coming, and he's coming to execute his rule and his judgment on the earth. And the people who belong to the king are not afraid, and they're not hiding they are coming out in joy to welcome their king because they're welcoming their deliverer. This is like when the Son of Man rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people came out to welcome the Son of David, the king coming to the city of David. They came out with palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the same way, the people of God will again, on that last day, welcome their king at his return to consummate his eternal kingdom. What about the clouds? Why does Paul specifically mention clouds? Clouds. Is it because we're going to be sitting on white, puffy clouds, playing harps for all eternity? No. So clouds are used throughout the Old Testament in connection with the divine presence. Think of Mount Sinai, right? Moses stepping into the cloud. We actually read in Zephaniah that the day of the Lord will be a day of darkness, a day of gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. These are the same clouds of heaven in Daniel 7 where the victorious son of man is given authority and everlasting eternal dominion to rule. And so the people of God enter the clouds of the divine presence in order to meet their arriving king. Now, something else we have to say about this verse. Th- this verse is the single verse in the Bible that is used to defend the idea that there will be a secret rapture of the church prior to and distinct from the second coming of Christ. And this has been, in recent decades, a very popular view. And there have been novels written about it. There have been movies made based upon that interpretation of this verse. But, I don't think that the actual textual evidence of the passage can legitimately be used to really support that view. So let me just briefly point out three reasons why I would want to question that. Number one, Paul's already told us the event that he's describing in verse 15. These are the events of the coming of the Lord. And and the original word is is parousia, and it's the same word that's used to describe the day of the Lord when, when the wicked are going to be judged and enter eternal condemnation and the righteous will be resurrected and enter into eternity and dwell with the Lord forever. It's the final judgment, the last day, the return of Christ. It's the same word that Paul's really been using throughout his letter as he's been speaking about the return of Christ, speaking of the crown that he will receive at the return of Christ. He tells the Thessalonians, it's you. You're my glory and my joy. You're my reward that I will receive on the last day. It's the same word here. And remember, Paul in our passages is answering a question about the resurrection of the dead. And so the events he mentions in his answer are all events that happen At the resurrection, at the coming of the Lord, on the last day. He's not talking about an event that is separate or prior to the return of Christ. Secondly, there's nothing secret about the Lord's descent from heaven to earth here. The description of the cry of command, the archangel's voice, the trumpet of God. We've already seen all these are references to the final judgment of God coming to raise his people from the grave and to judge the wicked. The secretive nature about the return of Christ is that we do not know when he is coming. But when he does come, we will know it. Everyone will know it. And then thirdly, there's there's no reason to interpret the language of believers meeting the Lord in the air as suggesting that the Lord is descending merely to the air and then returning back to heaven. Everything in the passage is describing the event as the last day, the return of the Lord to earth when he comes to judge and to save. Now, let's remember what Paul's main point in talking about all of this is. Sometimes we get excited about talking about the future and things like that, but I want us to have the same motivation and the same goals that Paul has for us here. He wants to inform the Thessalonians about these things. Why? So that they will have hope. And so it makes sense that he ends the passage really in the way that he began. Look at the end of verse 17. What will be the result when the Lord comes? Do we need to worry about those who passed away before the Lord comes? No. We will always be with the Lord. Verse 18 Therefore, encourage one another with these words. No longer grieve as those who have no hope, because you have hope. To be with the Lord is what the people of God long for more than anything. And whenever the New Testament teaches on the future and on the end times like this, there's always two motivations that show up for doing so. Uh, One is to provide hope and comfort for Christians who are struggling and suffering in the world. And the second is to call Christians to remain faithful to the Lord in this life while we wait. Paul's going to address that second goal in the next chapter. But his main focus in in our passage this morning has been giving the Thessalonians hope. And hope is found in the promise of being with the Lord forever. And it's the kind of hope that bears fruit in the present. It's a hope that enables us to undergo great loss in this life and great suffering and to do so in a way that doesn't make sense to the world around us. Because we will be with the Lord forever, we can even face death. Even death itself is unable to shake the foundations of our faith because Jesus has already gotten up out of the grave. And therefore, the sting of death has been removed for Christians because we may sleep before the Lord returns. But for everyone who has already heard his voice in the gospel and been made alive by his spirit, you can shut your eyes in death knowing that you will hear his voice again. And you will hear it with your physical ears of your new creation resurrected body so Christian the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us pray with me Father we long for the day when all of your perfect purposes are brought to their final and full completion Holy Spirit, would you fill your people with hope in the face of that which is unknown and uncertain? Would you enable us to walk in a way that is faithful to your word and is befitting of those whose trust is in our risen Savior? Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name.